You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Ziza Marodian. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. You've, uh, you've been responsible for, um, for my most exciting Twitter escapades in recent weeks. <laughs> in fact, I think I've hit my record for whatever impressions and engagements mean in, in, the, world of, uh, in the world of Twitter. I don't know. Apparently it's a lot. Indeed, and that's because um, I've been tweeting about your football documentary, We Are the Geordies, which is uh, due to hit DVD and digital platforms any day soon. Do you want to tell us when and how people can watch it? Yes, it is um, available on loads of VOD platforms, Amazon, uh, Apple, Google, blah, 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 all of those things. Um, and also DVD um, from the 11th of December. Cool. And how do people get the DVD? The best place for me to order it is if you order it directly from us on our website, which is uh, Um, But it's also will be available in shops, even though, tier three, even though we're in tier three up here. Uh, I understand that HMV, etc., are opening next week. So HMV, um, usual kind of record shops in okay. this area. So if you're, in, if you're um, in Liverpool or London, you can go to a shop, but if you're in Newcastle, yeah. you can't. I think you can go to. That's the way. I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm just going to say <laughs> I don't know. Hands up, no clue. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis to what the documentary is all about? I have to probably tie the documentary in a little bit to its origin story to give it a little bit of context. Um, so historically, I've been involved in some Newcastle United fan groups. Um, and in this uh, June, sorry, 2016, um, Rafa Benitez got announced. Newcastle United had just been relegated and it was announced that Rafa Benitez was actually going to stay on. Rafa Benitez being the manager who had previously been at Real Madrid and then come to Newcastle, kind of like a bolt from the blue to everybody and energised the city. 
Um, and then I happened to go to London to do a training course um, about low-budget filmmaking. And on this course, I kind of had this idea of, wouldn't it be great to follow Rafa Benita's season in the championship with Newcastle, but not follow the team, but follow the fans following the team? So that's what we did. And two months later, we were interviewing Rafa Benitez. So you, so it's a documentary about a contained season, one season of, of, a, of a football team's life, but obviously a fairly unique one in the sense of, like you say, Rafa Benitez, one of, you know, arguably one of the world's greatest football coaches, suddenly picks Newcastle. And not only does he pick Newcastle, he stays on at Newcastle against all the odds of, um, of his career so far. Um, by staying with you in the second tier of, uh, of English football. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think on this course, I ha- actually happened to be speaking to um, a TV writer from Liverpool and we were both fangirling about Rafa Benitez. Um, and he was saying, you've gone from the Bernabeu to Barnsley. You know, like that's just an amazing season. You have to do it this season. Because I'd said, oh, it would be really great to do a film about Newcastle United supporters following their team. And he's gone, but this is such a unique season where you've got, as you say, one of the most uh, decorated managers of modern game playing in the second tier of Eng- uh, playing, managing in the second tier of English football. And that kind of was the impetus of it. I think one of the interesting things about it is, is having watched it myself, is while while the fans are clearly the stars of the show, um, the kind of antagonist force is not necessarily the teams that you're winning, beating, or uh, sorry, losing or drawing with. There's a, there's an antagonist in your story that isn't actually there, isn't present at all, um, and it's amazing how you've managed to tackle it without being too overt. Is is Mike Ashley who in in the football press? Everyone's aware of is not necessarily the most popular owner of a football club, and certainly not one of the most popular men in Newcastle. Um, outside of the Sunderland supporters who might live in the city, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and and I think one of the, I think you tackled it really well because it, it, he he obviously is present because he owns the club while it's happening, but you've not allowed the story to be about him. You've you've kept the you kept the story true, which is how fans go up and down like a roller coaster while their team offer your hope, dash your hopes, provide inspiration, and so on and so forth. It was because we didn't have a lot of prep time. As I say, it was kind. It was literally two months and one day from idea to interviewing Rafa. It it was that quick. Um, We didn't have an editor when we started out, um, and I was kind of going around everybody I knew who edited and edited TV, uh, not TV, reality documentaries, that kind of thing, as opposed to drama. Um, And we got really lucky in that a friend of mine. had some availability and he's a tremendous editor and it was working with him and James who my partner who wrote it that's where the narrative got pulled out and we had loads of back and forth on how to handle it how to handle the presence of Ashley without like you say overtly because it, because we didn't go in through the PR department we went in through the fans liaison officer at Newcastle United a guy called Lee Marshall um, who I had a prior relationship with because of the fans groups. Um, it was always an understanding that it would be an honest reflection, but without being a hit job. Um, and it could have, it could, it could have quite easily turned into a hit job. And I didn't want to sell out the supporters by kind of making a fluff piece and making it all corporate and lovey, 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 like a lot of 
stuff tends to be, particularly when you're involved with the marketing department. But at the same time, I didn't want to violate the trust of the person who'd given us the access um, and just turn it into an anti-Ashley piece. And apart from anything else, because the season was so positive and it was all about hope, I didn't want to kind of change the tone of it and turn it into a depressing anti-Ashley piece. And in hindsight, it's great that we didn't go down that route because now with lockdowns and the way the situation is, this kind of has quite a feel-good feeling, feel-good feeling, but you know what I mean? There's a feel-good factor around it. No, no, no. The other note, the other very noticeable thing about it when you first, when the film first starts off and there's just that, there's a wonderful shot that, of people just drifting into a football stadium. You know, without a care or without a care or leaving the world, just drifting into stuff. Not even like they're not even they're not necessarily even excited. They're just doing normal things like walking around amongst thousands of other people, chit chatting, eating a burger, noshing on the chips or whatever they might be doing, and looking for their mate. You know, waiting around. And I was like, my God, I just had this 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 weird nostalgia kick for not giving a shit. And uh, and but also remind because we've been. This this arrives while we're watching football with no fans in the stadium. It's a healthy reminder of of the importance of that Jock Steen quote, which you've been using for uh, promotion, which is liberally. Yeah, but but it's true. I mean, people. I mean, I think TV companies have overestimated their value to football, and in fact, without the fans, it's like watching a. I mean, admittedly, you know, there's more at stake if you look at what the result means when the final whistle blows, but as a piece of entertainment. It doesn't function when there's no fans in the ground. I mean, I'm not someone that goes every week, so I'm only I'm only living football vicariously. But even even with that even with that secondhand view of football, it feels like a rusty old thing when you watch it when there's nobody in the ground. It's kind of you find yourself not bothering. It's a strange it's strange in Newcastle as well because it's a, it's a small city geographically, um, and everything's concentrated. I mean, we live. To my, I don't even live in Newcastle. I live in Gateshead, which is south of the river. As the crow flies, I'm probably two miles from St. James's Park. But when the city, when the team are doing well in normal, not that the team are doing well in normal, what I'm saying is in normal non-coronavirus circumstances, if the team is doing well, you can feel the buzz through the whole city. And if the wind is right, I can hear St. James's Park from my house. So when Alan Shearer broke Jackie Milburn's goal-scoring record, like in 2012 or something, no, earlier than that, 20, 2006, he broke the all-time goal-scoring record for Newcastle United. And I could hear Shearer, 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 Shearer from my living room. You know, it was whatever, the windows were open. But you kind of go to hear that many people together en masse all doing the same thing it's a really powerful sensation, which I think certain sometimes people who don't live in the city don't get. And that was really what I was trying to show is not just the importance of the fans to football, but the fans and the football to the city of Newcastle upon time and how the three things all kind of work together. As a Liverpool fan and as a as someone with, uh, as part of the Rafa Benitez alumni uh, that Liverpool are, um, you know, what he did in 2005 for the city of Liverpool, never mind the football club. Is is never to be underestimated. He 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 brought a pride back to the club that was that was sort of becoming a history channel episode, not not a club for the future. And it was, and I think that's 
that's one of the things that you know I guess not football fans don't quite understand did he that 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 football is more than just the the 90 minutes on the pitch is and it's not to say that you have to obsess about it every second of the day but it does it does dictate a collective mood I don't quite understand it in this city I can't I can't like when Keegan was here entertainers period everywhere you went there would be um Kevin Keegan people had people had pictures of Kevin Keegan up randomly all over the place. It was like it really does infect the whole city. Um and historically, um, you've you've seen the film, so you know who I'm talking about, George, the old, the older fan who's probably just about 80 now, 75 when we shot the film. He talked about he worked at Swan Hunters, the big shipyard. That was his young life was working there as a draftsman. And he said that productivity would go up 20% on the back of a Newcastle win. So the whole, it, it's not, it's not, it's like, it, it affects the economy of the city. It affects people's mood. It affects the shop floor. It affects the factory floor, all that kind of stuff. People live and breathe football. It's such a cliche, but in this city, it just, if everything's going the right way, it's, a great place to live. If it's not the Joe, we wrote a script at one point for George Culkin, who just being a writer himself threw it out the window and did his own thing. But it was like this whole thing of that city, the, the stadium is on a hill. So you can see it from everywhere. And when you're doing well, you find your eye line drifting towards it as you're coming into town. It's like a little homing signal. And when they're doing badly, it's just like a black hole sitting on the top. It's like the eye of Sauron sitting on a, sitting on a mountaintop and you just want, you don't even want to have anything to do with it. It's just, you know, they're playing black and white and it is like that. It's bizarre. Now there's obviously loads of examples we could talk about, about how to make this, but there's one particular bit that I'd like to, because one thing that happens in this season that you decide to follow is that it is if you try to script it a bit like the Istanbul uh, Champions League final, if you try to script it the way it panned out, people would go, don't be so ridiculous. Don't be so ridiculous. But but you still, but, but you're making a documentary, which means you're unscripted. No matter how ridiculous the outcome is in terms of logic, you are capturing what happened. And there's that wonderful moment when, um, when you've won the championship, as it were, is is filtering through the crowd. Can you can you talk about how you set yourself up to because. I've been, tell, I've been telling everyone that will listen to me this, that one of the things that I loved about what you capture is just that little thing where two people are going, hey, we've, we, I think we've won it. I think they're, they're losing them. And then that just spreads to 10 people. And then suddenly thousands of people, a whole stadium is now cheering off what's that, what seems to, from the way you've shot it, what seems to start with about two or three people who are going, who are, got, who are getting the news. Did you see the little, did you see the girl? There's a woman who, she's got a phone. There's, I can't. If you don't know the stadium, it's difficult to explain. So there's like the Gallagher, which is like the really noisy Larry end. And then there's a bit where Dave, the guy in the wheelchair sits and they're kind of competing with each other on noise. And there's a, there's a girl standing in there. If you get a chance to watch it again, she's probably about just to the right hand side of the screen, about halfway pretty dark haired girl and she's got a phone and she's the first person. She jumps, she jumps up, doesn't she? She's on public. She, she's, she's, she's looking on her phone and she's obviously seen that, um, Aston Villa have equalised and she starts going, we've won it, we've won it. And then it just spreads everywhere. And it's just this amazing thing. So how did you set yourself up for that to make sure you got that shot as it were? What was your, what was your, what was your, your sort of production arrangements? Part of, part of it was sheer luck. Part of it was sheer luck. We knew we wanted to have 
people at the two ends of the ground where our fans were. So we had, James had two cameras, the writer, director, he had two cameras in one end of the ground. We had actually another James at the other end of the ground with our fans. I actually snuck in and smuggled a camera and sound equipment in with the fans uh, and was right up at the top somewhere. Um, And um, then because we actually had camera fans as well. So amazingly, three professionals for want of a better word but then loads of other people who had their own phones we were getting their footage in as well and we just got arsehole lucky for want of a better phrase the the sound just reverberated round as the as the various areas of the ground realized what was happening it was just this wave of sound and that's the one bit that really guts me about not being able to show it in a cinema is in the 5.1 surround surround sound that mix that we've got. You can actually feel it coming around you. I'm no Newcastle fan, but as a football fan, it's impossible. I mean, obviously, I I I, I won't be including Sunderland in that conversation, but but as a football fan, uh, watching watching all those fans get the feel because that's that's the season's weight that they're getting excited about. It isn't just that moment. That's that. That's that's a season coming together into a perfect storm of absolute elation. And I'm trying to film stuff on my phone. I'm trying to film the people around me on my phone, and I'm like wired for sound. I've got like hidden microphones on my person, um, and I just thought if I got searched on the way, and I wouldn't have been allowed in because not everybody knew. Even within the club, not everybody knew what we were doing all the time. Um, and then my phone just started pinging, going, there's your Hollywood ending. You've done it. Oh, my God, I can't wait to see this film. And I, I'm not, I got like 100 texts in the last sort of five minutes of the match of just people sending me messages of, you know, can't believe this is happening. You got, you know, you got lucky. And we did get lucky. Over the season, how did you manage to uh, be a producer of a football documentary and be a fan of Newcastle United at the same time? I don't know. It was just... and and. <laughs> Be a mum to a disabled kid as well. It was it was just a nightmare. I, I can't. I, it's just as well it all happened four years ago because I think I'm only just coming out of the high of it. To be honest with you, um, it, trying to kind of keep track of. We had this big in the spare room in the house, which is kind of our de facto edit suite. We had this huge. I just pinned up loads of bits of um, sheets of white card. And then we had all of the matches and who we were seeing at which match and what we talked about. And just this, it's like a huge wall planner that just goes the entire length of a wall in the house with, you know, what, what we're doing here, how, and how to keep up with it. Cause that was the thing. It was, a, I laugh now when I look at something, I was going to say, I laugh when I look at Sunderland until I die, but that's just a spiteful cause it's Sunderland and B I've never actually watched it. But I laugh at when I look at the credits of these normal shows uh, how vast the credits are because the majority of our film was done with at the most three camera people at a time um quite often one camera person and one sound person um so the and i still don't know how we did it it was a miracle i mean i vivid i mean it's weird to think that even though i'm not a newcastle fan i vividly remember you losing that friday night game against fulham on the opening game of the season because obviously it had been such big news that Rafa had decided to stay. And, I'd, and obviously I'd not remembered it as something that stuck with me. But then when your documentary started and then it said, follow me the first guy, I'm like, oh, my God, yeah, they lost that. It was a Friday night, wasn't it? And it was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a long season. And I had obviously, we lost the first two games. And I was not aware, obviously, you were making this movie at the time. But 
how did you, I mean, at that point, did you think, oh, for crying out loud, what am I doing? I just kept saying, everybody kept saying, well, what if they get relegated? That'll be a disaster, which ironically is what happened to Sunderland. And it wasn't a, dis- well, it wasn't a disaster for us because Newcastle fans watch that and just laugh. People kept saying, what if you get relegated? And I said, it's about drama. What I don't want is a mid-table. If we get mid-table mediocrity, I'll cry. If we go up in in the playoffs or with some fluky, amazing Hollywood ending, as we called it, that would be great. If we go down and get relegated, it's dramatic. It's not really, it's, it's not about the football. And that's the thing I learned even following football. I'd never been to an away game. And I was like, why do people go to away games? But when you go to an away match, you realise that it's not about the football. It's that spending the time with your mates. It's it's a jolly for a weekend. And the football is kind of incidental. Um, and in a way, it's the same with this film in that the football is obviously an integral part of it, but in some ways it's also background. It provides the dramatic arc, but it's background. It's beautiful how... Football as a MacGuffin can hold families together, can maintain an identity in somebody. Like you, I think one of the people is living and working in the Middle East, for example, and and coming back to Newcastle is about the football, but obviously it's about spending time with family at the football. But they become catalysts for the two things. Um, they're not. It's not just a selfish decision to go watch a football match ever, ever. You know. Um, I think you capture I, the other thing is is that. Um, is and I think you know, especially in this time where there is no fans in the ground, the away the away support of a football team. I mean, obviously Newcastle's a big enough team that they get people coming in from all over the world. But but the fans wherever they live, going home and away with Newcastle, are making a hell of a sacrifice to watch a football match. And like you say, yes, it is a jolly and that's fun and that's why they do it. But again, it's not to be underestimated the the, the amount of personal sacrifice that goes on to watch a football match. It's insane. And because we're in Newcastle, like the the most northerly city in that league, as we are now in the Premier League, that season, forget, and bear in mind, we went on a cup run as much as everybody goes, oh, Steve Bruce has got you to a quarterfinal of a cup and Rafa never did that. We did get to the quarterfinal of the cup that season as well, uh, the League Cup. So, but we just, we, and although we covered it, we just, it didn't make the edit. Um if you only did the league matches and did every match, you did 9,750 miles Whoa. in one season. When that, the cup run that I've just referred to, the quarterfinal was in end of November, beginning of December. And we went to three games. There was three games in a week and James and I covered them. And we, I think we drove. We did drive. I did over a thousand miles in a week following Newcastle United. And you just go, that's in one week. It's mad. And that's the kind, I mean, and I think, again, that's another aspect that <laughs> while you're telling this dramatic story of a, of a team's push to get promoted back into the top flight, is that it's really just a MacGuffin. The, the real story is there's people whose lives are, are being managed and dictated and, and whatever by, by their need to get to football and be with their friends. I mean, um, y- y- that that camaraderie that comes from football, which I guess you know, it comes in all you know, lots of other activities it comes in, but it seems it seems that the um the narrative thread of a season is is in is enough for people to keep telling an annual story with each other. You know, it's like what what are we gonna find out this time? You know, it's not it, it doesn't hold many surprises, but still 
there's an excitement attached to another season, which now we're watching it without fans. It's just a game of football. And, you know, what's that? Making the film, you kind of go into it thinking, oh, I'm a Newcastle fan. I am involved in fans groups and I do all this outside of football stuff to help my fellow supporters. But then when you make the film, you go, nah, I'm not really a fan. I'm kind of not in the way these people are fans, not in the I don't invest my entire life into it the way they do. Um, obviously, I get upset if we lose and, you know, if the football's bland and boring, you kind of, if they're bland and boring, I don't watch. Whereas my friends, and they are friends now with whom I made the film, they do watch and get depressed about it, I just switch it off. So really, although I call myself a Newcastle fan, I think I outed myself in making this film and realising I'm really not a Newcastle fan. I'm interested, and I'm more interested than most people, but I'm not a hardcore, I'm not a fanatic, we'll say. But that, but that's a sliding scale. I think you are a fanatic, I think you are a fanatic compared to a lot of other football fans. It's like it's, it's I mean, I'm, I, I call myself a fan, I'm not a supporter. I mean, you're a supporter, you know, it's like, my my watching days were like the nineties. I don't you know I don't really go anymore. And count on one hand the amount of games I've been to in the twenty first century, if I truth be told. Um, but you know that's that's what it's about. But I think that that football um, provide provides more than just a game of football. That's the thing that you you take away from it. That's the bit you remember, and that's what I think your film does really well. Plus, you've got a wonderful um, Hollywood story. Plus, you've got. The, the madness that is, and 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 I, it is a bit pretentious of me, but I have likened your your not telling, but but it's really their story of Ashley as like Rebecca the Hitchcock movie, where he's present like a ghost, but he's not really in your film because you you only mention him in the dispatches like the January transfer window where he's an arsehole, but it's not like you're saying he's an arsehole. It's like the news is saying it, not you. You know, Rafa Benitez is doing a press conference where he's going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? That 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 particular press conference, because the, the access we got was kind of, it was interesting access. We got into the written press conference. The way press, I don't know how much people know, but you've got multiple press conferences that might happen back to back. So there's the written media press conference, then there's the TV people, and then there's radio goes off and does their own thing. And we were all, we quite often, we were the only camera people in the written press conference. So we were with all the... Um, the sports writers who cover Newcastle United and that particular press conference, the kind of centerpiece of the film, if you like, I literally thought he was going to walk out at the end of it. The the fury in that room that was emanating from Rafa Benitez was, it was palpable. And we interviewed our fans afterwards to say, you know, what do you think's happening? And they were going, Oh, it's all, it's all the press. They're making it up. He won't walk. He won't walk. And I said, mate, I was in the room and, the fact that he didn't just like throw something at us all and then walk out still amazes me to this day. How we managed to kind of, how somebody can quite clearly have so much fury coming from them, but manage to play it down and have a coherent answer to a question still boggles my mind. But he's, but he is, he is the greatest whistleblower of bad football owners. I mean, if it wasn't for what he did at Liverpool, Hicks and Gillette would have... I'm sure you'd be talking to me as a Liverpool fan and we'd be drifting in the second division or something. I don't... We wouldn't be champions of the Premier League or having won the Champions League again. It, it, he, 
he did exactly the same thing in a different circumstances with Hicks and Gillette, you know, where the press knew what was going on and they knew there was a story, but he wasn't going to give it them. But his implication of what he was saying, i.e. what he was not saying, was enough to raise the red flag. And I think, I think you know, it's not, it's not had quite the dramatic effect on Ashley's ownership of Newcastle because he still is the owner. Um, but I certainly think, I certainly, I certainly imagine it's tempered the worser aspects of what Ashley might or might not have done, um, the way that Rafa Benitez was able to hold it together. He, couldn't, he certainly couldn't bully Rafa Benitez, and that's what, that's what he was able to prove, wasn't he? Yeah, definitely. And I think I think it caught everybody I think it caught the club off guard his impact on the fan base. Um I mean the the they actually had to release extra season tickets. It was insane. People were queuing around the block to get season tickets for this season. And bearing in mind this wasn't Premier League football. You're not going up against Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool. We were going against Burton Albion and, and you know that's not being disrespectful to them, but they're not household names regaled and faded around the world um and yet people wanted to watch this this team being put forward by this man because they felt we were at the beginning of something very special and i still think we might be i think i still think we'll turn the corner you have to the hope that kills you we are the geordies is out on 11th december DVD and on all digital platforms. I'll put links in the show notes so people can come direct to you at your website and or go to the various platforms that they might prefer to watch a film on. Um, but what we're going to do is five great sports documentaries because I imagine as, as someone who's made one, you're a fan of them and you've given me a list, which no doubt proves that. Um, they're not all football ones. So um, it's testing me to, to the power of sport as much as anything else. And and the human spirit, I think it's safe to say, isn't it? I mean, and that's a that's that's definitely an important part of <clears throat> clearly what goes on on the pitch when, in your documentary. But as much as anything else, the human spirit of those that go around watching a game of football, talk about it, and you're you're obviously chaptering it. You're you're getting them at every you're getting their knee jerk reaction at every step of the way, where the future is still uncertain, and the the hope that springs eternal in those people is always evident. You know. What if, what if, if, if buts and maybes are what keeps us all going, innit? Um, <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to do five great rock, uh, sports documentaries and it is in that format. For those that don't know, um, we do it five, it's five films, five minutes per film chatter. And when uh, Pig the Dog Barks, can you hear that okay, Z? Yes, sir. When that bark, when, when, when Pig Barks, um, that's the end of five minutes and then we'll... Uh, We'll wrap up that film and move on to the next one. That seem okay to you? Sounds good to me. Right. We're going to do them, as I always do, in reverse date order, which means five minutes are counting. The first one is 1994's Hoop Dreams. I've just never been around a lot of white people, and uh, it was different because at a black school, you know, I can associate with the people that was, you know, you know, they talk the way I talk. Your ACT came in, William, and you received a 14 for a composite, which is not high enough It's already become a meat market, but I try to, to uh, do my job, as, you know, and serve professional meat. Have you taken the ACT? When do you plan to take it? Everything is just going great. Now this. This is 18th birthday. He lived and 
to get to see 18, that's good. Hook Dreams was the first sports documentary which actually showed me that sports documentaries are not about sports. They're about the people who participate in the sports, or in our case, the people who watch the sports. Um, it's uh, for people who are unfamiliar, it charts two youth basketball um, players over a period of years to whether um, following them kind of through high school, whether or not they're going to get to college. Both of them have the dream of making it to the NBA. Um, it's actually recently been reissued by Dogwoof for its 25th anniversary. God, it's really awful to think that 1995 was 30 years ago. But yeah, um, it's just an amazing piece. Of, it's, it's an amazing piece of cinema in that it is. it just captures the hopes, the dreams, the aspirations, the abject poverty that these two kids in... I think it's Chicago or somewhere like that, live, what they're going through, their family circumstances. Um, yeah, that's probably why I chose that one. And like ours, it's not... Without being disparaging about the current wave of sports documentaries, which are really hot at the minute, they tend to be a lot of archive, a lot of talking heads. And Hoop Dreams is not that. It's actually fly on the wall following people following their life, following their experiences, drifting in and out of their lives at key points. And that's kind of what we were trying to do with our film as well, um, is just capturing those moments that sort of, we all think that we have ordinary lives, but if you've got somebody filming your life and picking the best bits, we actually all have quite extraordinary lives. And that's a real fascination of mine is ordinary people with extraordinary lives and just trying to kind of capture those small moments that make up somebody's story where they're the protagonist of their own story and they're driving their own story. How many years then does the does Hoop Dreams cover then for the for the for the protagonist of the story? I think it covers about I think it covers about 5 years. Wow. I think. I mean yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's a few years since I've watched it but I always remember the kind of I watched it three or four times back to back to back when it came out. Um and it really blew my mind and it, like it, ju it just stays with these kids so you see them I think one one of them did make it to the NBA he didn't and I think it was the one who he didn't expect to make it there's two African-American kids and one comes from a really chaotic life like drug dealing and whatever single parent the dad's in jail that kind of thing and then I mean they've both got not great lives but the one who's got the worst life is the one who I think made it to the NBA um, for a short period of time, he wasn't. He, he didn't play for a long time. He wasn't a superstar player, but he actually made it. And you know, to to make it as a professional athlete in your chosen field, um, more so NFL than NBA, because obviously basketball, people play all over the world. NFL, there's only three thousand professional NFL players at any one time of a population of seven billion people. That that kind of totally blows my mind. And again, it's those extraordinary moments in somebody's life that make up their really interesting life story and make them unique individuals. It's interesting because because that 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 side of football in this country is only really coming to pass now. This idea that because I remember saying to a friend of mine once that that you know if you've got a youth team, you need 21 other players to make sure Steven Gerrard can develop as a footballer. So those 21 other players are just there 
to service Steven Gerrard's development. Steven Gerrard doesn't know this, and neither do the 20 other play- 21 other players. But that's effectively what's happening. Their, their success or failure is irrelevant if what happens is you produce a Steven Gerrard or an Alan Shearer or a Peter Beardsley or whatever. You still need all them. You need, you need, you need tens of amateur and college and whatever else sports organisations to, to, to lend a hand making sure that the one superstar emerges. It's, cra- it's, it's crazy. And when you put it like that, you're right. They are kind of serving some Steven Gerrard was the example you used. They are serving his narrative. They are serving his development. Um, and so many of them fall by the wayside. And I think, again, it's a, it's fascinating the sacrifices that people put into sport. Well, you know whether whether they're players or whether they are supporters or their trainees and developing their careers. Just the amount of dedication that goes into create creating that is amazing. Well, there was Pig to remind us that five minutes has quickly passed, so we'll jump quickly to another couple of years to an absolute classic in the sports documentary when we were kings. The king is going home to get his throne. Yeah, when I get to Africa, we're going to get it on because we don't get alone. So we try to get the champions of the sports world, champions of the music world. You know, it was handsome, it was articulate, it was funny, and was whooping ass, too. <laughs> George Foreman was a phenomenon. The big, bad monster, and no one can whoop him. We're going to fly in the air till we get to Zaire. This chump is Scott. Everybody's scared. They thought he would take one of the world's worst beatings ever, and he wouldn't give up. Scared of what? In a time of courage in the jungles of Zaire. I like to tell the children of the world, quit eating so much candy. We must whoop Mr. Tooth Decay. When We Were Kings is the story of the rumble in the jungle, which was a huge boxing match when sort of heavyweight division of... Boxing um, was, I guess, at its peak in the 70s. Um, And you had Muhammad Ali, the GOAT, against all GOATs, the greatest of all time. Um, I think he was coming, he was was actually coming back. He'd he'd lost, or, or people were beginning to doubt he had it in him to beat the young stud who everybody was fating as being the greatest you know, the greatest was George Foreman, uh, who later learned, loaned his name to the Grills. Um, but at that point was sort of the hardest hitting heavyweight boxer of all time. Um, and Don King set up a fight. I mean, the story of the Rumble in the Jungle itself is amazing, where he kind of was pitching them against each other, saying the way the way he pulled it off was amazing, but that's not within the film. And let's I won't distract from that. Um and the guy who, the, the way the fight worked was, it was all set to take place in what's now Democratic Republic of Congo, I believe, but was then Zaire. Um, and George Foreman got injured before the fight was scheduled to happen. And so there was, the fight was postponed for like a week or a month and they were stuck in Zaire, the two, the two boxers. Um, and Muhammad Ali totally embraced his African roots, we'll say, and 
engaged the community and got involved. And there's a really famous scene where he's doing his like his rocky training run through the streets and all the street kids are following after him going, Ali Bomaye, which I think means Ali, kill him. Um, like smash him. And George Foreman was not coping as well, was homesick and um, that probably impacted his ability to fight. But the way the the, the film itself the guys who shot it, I think Taylor Hackford was one of them. I can't remember the other guy. I should know that. I keep looking over there because the poster's just behind you. I've got the poster on my wall. Um, they shot the film, I was going to say 40 years ago, but it was 40 years ago then. Um, and then whatever happened, the film didn't get finished at that time. The edit didn't happen. And then 40 years later, the filmmakers got all the archive out and created this film. And again, in a way that influences our film, there's not a massive amount of boxing within the film. It's people talking. So they get Norman Mailer, George Plimpton, I think Spike Lee might be there, lots of famous sports writers, cultural icons, etc., to then talk about the film. And Ali is a character within the film. So although it's very much a Muhammad Ali film, there's a poster of Muhammad Ali on my wall with When We Were Kings, He's not particularly interviewed retrospectively. His in, the interviews you see of him are kind of the contemporaneous ones that were taken at the time. I think it was going to be like a big music festival. So there's like music, like James Brown, blah, blah, blah. Probably still the best documentary of all time, again, about the greatest boxer and probably greatest athlete of all time, Muhammad Ali. It's interesting on, from a cultural point of view, isn't it? Because essentially... The, the the media profile across the globe of heavyweight boxing, um, which by the 80s then turned into middleweight boxing with, uh, with Hitman Hearns and Sugar Ray Leonard and all that and Marvin Hagler, is it was, it was almost like, like America was fighting America all over the world to show how dominant they were. Like, look, we can beat ourselves. Like it's, <laughs> but we always win because, we're beat, because, because it's only two Americans. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is a crazy thing. And then, again, the crazy thing is that you've got two um, African-Americans and one of them very much embraced the African part of his heritage. And then the other guy, Foreman, was just homesick, a man out of place, wandering around. I think kind of he wears that sort of double denim with the Baker Boy denim hat as well. And again, culturally, I think one of the things that the um, the locals talk about is he had a German Shepherd dog. And when um, Zaire, as was then, had recently won its independence from Belgium, I think, um, the Belgians used German Shepherd dogs to kind of quell uprisings. So the fact that he had a German Shepherd dog that he brought with them to stop him being homesick instantly sets him in opposition against the people who were who inhabit this town, village, city, where they're holding this boxing match. So it's just a weird thing. You've got the guy who's like the big American imperialist, and then you've got the the sort of whatever, the guy who's culturally more in tune with the people of the country where they're fighting. It's an amazing film. And this is no this is no slight on, on George Foreman, but I think, you know, Cassius Clay, as, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali, was just one of a kind, wasn't he? I mean, that's the, that's the thing. I mean, he, he was so assured of who he was that I think, I think he would have embraced anywhere he went, in a sense. Yeah. It's like, 
I mean, cultural icon kind of probably is an understatement. You know, just he is the main man. We're going to fast forward now into the 21st century for your next choice. So 2014, next goal wins. Guys, just, just listen up. Sometimes it's your feet, last defender maybe, you might have to take the slide tackle. Always play the ball, otherwise it'll be a red card. You can start the slide right here. Yes. All right, four or five yards away. Yeah. Dale, no sex tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> When when we started making our film and then we go, oh, you're making a football documentary, you need to watch this. And it ended up being another one that was kind of an influence in We Are the Geordies, in that it you realize that it's again, it's not about the sport. This as you said earlier, the sport's the MacGuffin. Um, it's about the people um, taking part in the sport in this case. And it actually follows, I think it's the American Samoa international football team and their crap. At the, the time the film was made or the seasons that they followed, they were the FIFA worst ranked team in the world. They'd come off the back of, I think it was possibly the biggest defeat of all time. And it was like 26 nil to... Australia or somebody I can't I can't remember the exact it's another one I've got the DVD I've watched it about three times but not recently um so they're just really crap and they're basically trying to regain the pride of the nation behind them the football team because they've just been an embarrassment for a million years and then Samoa American Samoa's Polynesia somewhere so they've kind of got that um Polynesian heritage, but then it's American Samoa, so you've also got like the American influence. So the kind of the, the kind of try to go like a rah rah rah, you can do it, you can do it, come on, Rocky kind of thing, and you know, but the coach is crap and doesn't really help. Um, so FIFA has this weird thing where they're trying to bring soccer to these outlying things and embed it within there, and they say that they that the Samoan FA, for want of a better word, they're going to give them a European coach. And they send this guy called Thomas Rongren, who I think is Dutch, to go and coach. And I guess it's a bit like Rafa coming to Newcastle now at this point. So you've got this sort of Europe, again, not necessarily a superstar player, not necessarily a household name, but European. So he's been against some of the best coaches and managers and he comes on board to help their, the team become a better become a better team, improve, rise up the rankings and all that kind of thing. And I think it's for their qualification for whatever World Cup, whatever year it is, 2012 World Cup or something. But then as you're watching the film, you realise that it's actually less about the team and their success, but it's also his story and he, his daughter died in a car crash maybe a year or two years before he takes this job. And football, blokey, blokey, bloke, he hasn't confronted the grief. He hasn't, consul- he hasn't confronted this awful thing within his life. And the sort of the family, the, 
culture of this nation of people where he's going there to be their saviour imbues him and softens his hard European exterior and this gruff football bloke. And he starts coming to terms with the grief of losing his daughter and at the same time coaching them to be a better team and actually coaching them properly, like cone drills and all that stuff. But again, the cast of characters is amazing. So this 26 nothing loss, they've still got the goalkeeper from that team is still involved. So, you know, at various periods, he's been a broken man. Culturally, within American Samoa, they actually have a third gender, which is trans. So there's a guy who plays on the team, but who is a woman. I don't think he's. I don't think he's had an operation. I don't think he's gone the full uh, transgender thing. But he dresses a woman. He's very. It dresses long hair, done nails, all that kind of stuff. And but within their passports, they've got male, female, and whatever, I can't remember what the actual name of this category is. So you've got this kind of trans woman in amongst rah-rah-rah macho football men, and she happens to be the best player on the team as well. So, you know, it's kind of, it's just, it's just a way, I think Taika Waititi has possibly bought the rights to the story and is making a dramatic story of this documentary, but the documentary itself is just completely amazing. And I don't think I'd ever want to live in American Samoa because it's very small and very poor, but it's just, he kind of, the the Dutch guy actually, Thomas Rongren actually does a bit what Jack Charlton did when he took over as island manager. So he gets these people who happen to be Samoan by some ancestral quirk qualified to play, but maybe are Americans, whatever. Watch yeah. it. It's great. No, it sounds amazing. Graham Souness may well have thought he was ripping up trees when he signed Mo Johnson to uh, Rangers as the first Catholic to put on a blue shirt, but Forever Pure from 2016 is a whole other kettle of fish, isn't it, in terms of uh, breaking down? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, now, that, that is, that's how nasty fan, fans can be. Um, and I'm not trying to be disparaging here. But, um, yeah, this centres on, I think it's Beitar Jerusalem in Israel, in the Israeli whatever, Israeli Premier League. I don't know what the league's called. Um, and their fan base are proudly racist. They are essentially Jewish supremacists. Um, I don't think, uh, like I say, that's what they call themselves. I'm not using that term pejoratively. Um, And they've always had a history of only ever having Jewish players turn out for them. And their owner is a, essentially he's Russian, but he's emigrated to Israel, um, Jewish guy, who decides... It late, I mean, spoiler alert here, it later turns out he just does it to screw with the hardcore fan base by signing two Muslim players. He doesn't sign Arabs, he signs two Chechen Muslims, um, young lads, and they move to Israel and are basically just treated like dirt by this kind of, I think they're called La Familia or something, the family. 
um, like the ultras of this team and they're just horrible racist proudly horrible racist whatever and they're the they're they're the team that whoever wants to run to be the mayor who could eventually end up being the prime minister of israel they're the ones that you know israel like a lot of the like a lot of the west has kind of gone more and more right wing by using nationalism and all that kind of stuff to divide people so this is the team that they all say a bit like the Royals and David Cameron, it's always Aston Villa in this country. It happens to be um, this Beitar, Jerusalem, and it follows the season with these two guys, um, you know, two young lads, homesick, missing their culture, um, and basically being tormented by horrible fans. But again, it's just the conflict. It, there's always just a sense of danger because the fans are loonies like throwing bricks at the buses and stuff. Serious, hardcore political stuff, but amazing at the same time. And again, the football is the MacGuffin. Of course, yeah. I mean, and, and it kind of it, it exposes, like certainly for myself, it exposes like how myopic my view is of football. You know, I, I understand like the presence of ultras at, in Italy, for example, and, and the, the, un, the unreasonable and unnatural um, demands they can place on their, their clubs. From simply being a fan base, which is, which you know, we've seen fan bases in in England, you know, wield their power, but it's nowhere near the same influence as what we've seen with with ultras. But then to think about a team in Israel having power, but obviously that power is within with is within Israel. If you take that football team and put them outside of Israel's domestic league, they're invisible, aren't they? Really, in a sense, to 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 you know, La Liga, you know, Serie A. Premier League and stuff, they don't. No, I don't. I mean, I don't think they particularly um, make a um, a dent on the on the world game, except except in this circumstance. And it, it again, it's it's great in that it exposes the stupidity of racism as well, because they keep calling these two lads, you know, you dirty Arabs or whatever, and they're going, but we're not Arabic, we're Chechen, and Chechen are actually Caucasian, and you know, it's kind of so you've got that the the. Shining, shining a mirror on racists as well, but in a context that's very different from how we would do it in this country or how you how it would happen in the in the in the West, the cultural West. Is is there any road to Damascus in this, or is this just a kind of spotlight on honourable people? Oh no, it's it. Well, it, it probably is a it, it, pro- it probably is just a spotlight on horrible people. But the end, the end when the owner basically admits that he just did it. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this, but he basically just did it for fuckery. Is kind of quite hilarious. It's I mean, it, it is it is worth a watch. I mean, it's brutal though. Again, it's that thing of going back to the idea that football brings people together, but it doesn't mean that everyone's good or everyone's bad. No, and it, 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 it can be divisive as well when it gets when it gets sectarian. And you know, I use that in in a, in a loose sense. I know yeah, we yeah. referenced Graham Sooners, but it can be sectarian. We're going to move into TV for your fifth choice, which is uh, an unusual, unusual step change. No, not at all. No, I've had I've had public information films used in five great British horror films, so a TV series is no problem whatsoever. You're going to talk us through um, Last Chance You. The truth is, it all comes down to the coach. I think everybody knew we had to find somebody really good. The game's over. I ain't no math major, but I'm a hustler. 
This right here, this block right here. Probably the worst neighborhood in the country. And I was the only one of my skin tone out here. I was a two-time junior college All-American, broke all the records in Southern California. I got a free agent shot with the Kansas City Chiefs and played arena football and started coaching right This one is about American football, so like NFL, but way below the NFL level. It's set in junior college. So in America, it's all every everybody who goes to play professional sports in America tends to go through college first. Weird, I yeah, it is, it is a strange, but the weird, really weird thing is like it's some of the some of the college programs have like Michigan plays in front of a hundred thousand people. I mean, that's bigger than a Premier League stadium, and it's college. It's like a huge thing, but this is not college college. This is um, it's called JUCO Junior College. So it's kind of, the first season is set in a place called Scuba or Scooby, East Mississippi, and it it's just one of those real little one horse hick towns, three shops in the middle of Mississippi in America. But it got this amazing, the, the opening of it, it kind of just shows you like cutaways of, I don't know, like a cow's backside and the sawmill and this and that. And then suddenly this drone shot of this mint, perfect, amazing football stadium in the middle of nowhere. And this school recruits all the best. It's the kids who... It, it's the kids who cocked up, basically, you know, maybe they didn't do well enough in high school, so they didn't get a college scholarship or they went to college and got busted for smoking weed. So they get kicked out of college. And this is so it's the last chance you being this is their last chance to get to university, hence the title. Um, and. Again, it follows a football season. But the focus, as well as being on. And ironically, I found out about this about two weeks before we start shooting our film. So you'll suddenly see the influences of all these things within what we're doing. It just follows the lives of these kids and like hoop dreams. It's the staggering poverty in the richest country in the world. It, it blows my mind. So the first two seasons were in Mississippi. Then it goes to another boondock place um, in Kansas, I think, called Independence. And that's really interesting because the coach there is from Compton, so, but he's a white guy from Compton, kind of our age in his 40s. So grew up in Compton when the whole NWA and African-American culture and gangster rap was like the massive thing. And he was the only white guy in Compton. So he's got all the street lingo, but he's in this very straight-laced, conservative Midwestern American town, being the coach of their football team. And then... You just think it can't get any better. And we just watched season five, which was set in Oakland. And season five, more than anything, shone a light on the absolute poverty within the richest country in the world. Because for people who don't know, Oakland is just across the bay from San Francisco and is in the heart of Silicon Valley. And over the last 20 years, as Facebook, Google, blah, 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 have taken over, Oakland is undergone a huge gentrification and the Oakland one is as much about the players some of whom are commuting two hours a day to get to college have to do their full they don't have scholarships so they have to pay their tuition so they've got jobs families two-hour commutes there's one kid their star player actually sleeps in a car he's homeless um, and they're still playing football at five o'clock in the morning with the hope of winning a scholarship to a 
football college, which will then get them a division one college, which will then get them on the radar of NFL teams. And just the sacrifices these kids put in, like I say, the star, the Oakland one, he lives in his, he lives in his car. He's homeless and he go, he works in a wing place, like whatever fast food chicken wing place. So he's up at five o'clock in the morning going playing football, then does a full day of college and then goes and works at night and then goes and sleeps in his car. And the sacrifice that kid makes to do anything. And it's all shot in the most cinematic, amazing fashion. For the first one, they actually got a, um, I think it was a thousand mil lens so they can be on the sidelines, but get really intimately in the mix of the, the line of scrimmage of these football games. And I think they said, I read an interview with one of the directors, I think it said it took three guys to hold this lens so they could get the shots that they needed to shoot this film, uh, film show. Um, and like I say, five seasons, totally amazing. And I think the filmmakers are doing basketball, college basketball next. But again, it's just, they're not ordinary people, extraordinary lives. I just keep coming back to this, that all of the, all of the, I, I realized the thread, the thread in this is all just normal people who just do amazing things. Now let's remind everybody then, when can, when and how can people see We Are The Geordies? Digital platforms and DVD are from the 11th of December. DVD, we're taking pre-orders now so that you will get your DVD by December. Why we're doing DVDs? Because fans like to collect things. I'll put links in the show notes to www.wearethegeordies.com and um, to other dig- and to the digital platforms as well. Uh, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Thank you very much. Great fun. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.